Good morning, everyone. My name is John Wayne. I work with the Wilderness Ministry here at Bethany, and it's a privilege to be with you this morning as we walk through our series on the parables. Last week, we heard from Jonathan on the forgiven woman and how this parable can develop our ability to see, to see both the great forgiveness we've been given and the great love we are now called to. And this week, we will be sitting with the parable of the Good Samaritan. The story matters a great deal for us because similar to the lawyer, there are different lenses and ideologies that we are currently holding on to that are preventing us from engaging with one another and seeing our neighbor. There are principles, beliefs, hard and fast decisions we've made, camps we've chosen that we thought would bring security and clarity, but have really just cut us off from participation in God's story. We could be holding firm to the uh, ideology of a political party, holding firm to our social status, socioeconomic status, our view of the unhoused, of immigrants, our beliefs around systemic racism in America, our own principles around generosity. Maybe it's a decision we've made in relationship that has cut us off from repair or a belief that we will never be or they will never be worthy, sufficient, capable. Maybe we're clinging to a belief that what we do in our short time here has no effect and doesn't matter or that the earth is a neutral component and not worthy to our worthy of our care. Our ability to see is impaired because there is much ideology, conscious, subconscious, that is preventing us from participating in the receiving and pouring out of love, moving deeper into God's story of redemption. Through the story of the Good Samaritan, Christ is calling us, his people, to a better way of being the church, to a greater participation, a movement further up and further in in loving God and our neighbor. We pray with me. God, we thank you for this text that is familiar to us. And God, though it's familiar, I pray, Lord, that you would make it new for each one of us, that you would encounter us in a new way today, that you would remind us of truths forgotten. Lord, would you bless the reading of your word this morning? It's through your son we pray, amen. I gotta admit, when I first heard that this was the text I was preaching on, I was pretty excited. I mean, it's the Good Samaritan. Greg Collins has probably taught this 90 times to our students. I was and am a church kid through and through, never missed Sunday school, and this one was always first in the lineup every year. A story I remember acting out, you know, playing the priest walking by my injured friend with nose upturned. It's a parable we're familiar with. Before we, get, before we engage the story, we want to remember both the purpose of parables and what makes up a parable. Now, parables were one of the most common ways that Jesus communicated. The purpose of the parables, through isolated stories like the Good Samaritan, they were ultimately in service of Jesus' larger project, which was to announce and inaugurate God's reign here on earth as it is in heaven. So what is a parable? A parable is a figure of speech or a parable refers to a saying, a teaching, or a story that sits alongside another reality. It's a similar concept to a metaphor, a story that sits alongside reality. So Jesus wants to talk about how his Israelite audience faces a decision between holding firm to ideology or moving into greater participation in God's kingdom. And he does this through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now remember, Luke wrote this story down for someone who was not sitting in the room. 
future participants in God's story, us. And Jesus presents us with the same question. It's timeless. It's one that cannot be answered in word, only in action. Will we hold firm to ideology or will we move into deeper, greater participation in God's kingdom? Wherever you are at on your journey, this parable meets us there today. So Jesus presents us with this story that seemingly doesn't take much working out. How does this fit into our modern day context? Jesus taught in an agrarian time period. What does this mean for our day? We don't have to do much heavy lifting with the normal interpretation questions. And instead of spending a lot of time interpreting this parable, we have to do a much harder work. We have to engage with the story and make a choice as to whether or not we will follow the words of Jesus who said, go and do likewise. Go and do as the Samaritan did. Now, before we talk about what our movement into participation could look like, let's consider this story and the characters that are part of it. This is a wild parable that Jesus shares with the lawyer. A traveler is beaten, bloodied, bruised, half alive. There are thieves, priests, Levites. Jesus crafts this parable in order to teach this lawyer what true mercy, compassion, and love look like. In our time today, we're gonna take a look at four characters, the Levite, the priest, the lawyer, and the Samaritan. With these characters, we encounter different lenses through which people see and respond to need, through which we see and respond to people in need. So when we look at the parables, we wanna consider who we might be in this story what lens we're carrying. Spoiler alert, we are not the good Samaritan. In most parables, there is a figure that represents Christ and that's the Samaritan. It's our individual personal duty to identify who we might be in this story. And it's our collective duty as a body, as Bethany, to identify who we might be in this story. That takes a great level of openness and vulnerability, but there is great grace that awaits us there. So let's look at the lawyer. If the, t- if the title of this chapter is The Lawyer, the subtitle might be something along the lines of an inner life over a lived down embodied faith. In my version, this character is named The Lawyer. In other versions, I've seen an expert in the law. Eugene Peterson described this character as a religion scholar who was trying to test Jesus. I think this is something high school John Wayne would have been proud to name himself as. And coincidentally, I did not have many friends. But uh, in reality, it's quite a caricature but there's something below the surface that I think will resonate with most of us. You see, underneath the question that the lawyer poses lies an ideology that I won't participate until our doctrine lines up. This testing of Jesus from the lawyer is something we're all guilty of, conscious or subconscious. We are carrying a few questions that we can use to identify people as in or out of our personal camp. What is this person wearing? Liberal, conservative, housed, unhoused. Whatever your questions might be, what we're really doing is choosing our proximity to our neighbor, how close we'll engage. We're identifying with an ideology over participating in relationship. Jesus answers the lawyer's question with another question. How do you read it? Love that question. With this question, Jesus dismantles the ideology of choosing the development of our inner life over being mercy and compassion. How do you read it? If our reading of the text doesn't motivate us to be compassion and mercy, then our reading of the text is far too small. Remember, ours is a God that dines 
with the religious elite and the tax collectors. I love that Jesus chooses to share this parable with the lawyer, the religious expert. You see, to be defined as a religious expert, this person spent the vast majority of their life studying the scriptures. I mean, think about what it means to be defined as an expert in our day. You know, we have the 10,000 hour rule. This was peak, this was the goal. But what we see is adoption of ideology over participating in relationship. Gustavo Gutierrez says this, the spiritual journey has often been presented as a cultivation of individualistic values as a way to personal perfection. The relationship with God seemed to obscure the presence of others and encourage individual Christians to be absorbed in their own interiority. This is the lawyer. This is a warning to us, our community. The parable of the Good Samaritan makes it abundantly clear that the development of our inner life is not the end goal, is not the calling that God has placed on our lives. Rather, the inner work that we do, the inhaling habits of meditation, prayer, solitude, time and creation, these things are what sustain us in our participation. The inner life sustains our concrete commitment to the will of the Lord in the midst of the poor, the marginalized, our neighbor. Said differently, Oscar Romero says that the Christian faith does not cut us off from the world, it immerses us in it. The lawyer asks, what else do I need? What box can I check in order to gain eternal life? And Jesus presents him with this wild story where an innocent man is assaulted, those who are supposed to be mercy and compassion shun him, and the most unlikely character shows empathy. Jesus makes it clear that he's not dealing in hyperboles and what ifs. Jesus is showing us what it means to be faithful both in our formation and our commitment to loving our neighbor, to being mercy. If our formation is not pulling us into deeper relationship, more diverse relationship with people who think differently than we do, then that is not faithful formation. You see, the lawyer had chosen ideology, that being beholden to certain doctrines or beliefs or ascribing the right ones, having the right answers, that that was what God desired, and it simply is not. There is no value to our doctrinal statements if they're not finding expression in our bodies. Lawyer's commitment to just developing the inner life ultimately found expression at debates at dinner parties. Surely that's not what we're called to. You know, the dinner, the dinner conversations are so much easier than participation. The social media posturing is so much easier than participation. And in this body, you are allowed to have questions. We are allowed to disagree in doctrine. The grace of Christ is expansive enough to hold all of us, but participation is the goal. Relationship with one another, engagement. And we're not saying no to formation. We just did an entire series on that. Rather, we're learning from the lawyer that we're to make an effort to be faithful both in our formation and in our commitment to the will of the Lord. The development of our inner life has to find expression. The good news for us, the good news for the lawyer is that Christ modeled this. There are these beautiful reports all throughout the gospels of Jesus retreating into the mountains to pray, to be with God. Regular rhythm of retreat in the outdoors is a pillar of discipleship for us here at Bethany and something we encourage. And all we've done is pull it from the scriptures. You know, we're not saying you have to 
go to Mount Adams and have this incredible experience. We're just pointing out that Jesus had this regular rhythm of retreat in the outdoors. In these examples throughout the gospels, Jesus retreats to the mountains to pray. And then what happens? Jesus returns. We see it in Matthew 14. Jesus retreats to pray, descends, walks on water, lands at Gennesaret and heals the sick, meeting those in need. What good news it is for all of us that we have a God who descends, who comes towards us. The good news for us and the lawyer is that Jesus was faithful in formation work and this sustained his commitment to those in need. Contrast to the lawyer, we have our second character, the priest. Surely this is the life we're meant to model, good doctrine, good work in the temple. And yet it's the priest who walks by the injured one. As a child, you read this and you're like, it's the priest. Of course, the priest is going to stop. You know, no idea what a Levite is, but the priest is going to stop. And no, instead we find a priest that is so wedded to his status that it results in a life of insulation. You see, the priest status was made up of qualifications and duties. In the Old Testament, priests were born into their role. This carried immense privilege and security. They were qualified by ordination and character. In their work, they handled the sacrifice, mediating on behalf of the Israelites. They were judges and educators. And they were called to bless Israel in the way of God. And this priest totally missed it. We're not pointing the finger here because there is a warning for us with the life of the priest. The role of the priest was to represent God on earth and bless Israel in the way of God. And now we are all priests according to the grace of God and have the same calling on our lives. But similar to the priest, there are ideologies and beliefs that we are clinging to that are preventing us from participating. Almost like blinders on a horse, our field of vision is narrowing. See, in this day, priests set themselves apart by great character, integrity, and purity. There were ritual cleansings that had great symbolism that taught the Israelites on how they were to relate with God. But at some point, the wires got crossed. Priests chose the symbolism of blessing people over the real thing. The priests chose the ideology of symbolism or status over the calling to participate in blessing the world in the way of God. Said differently, the priest chose principle over personhood. I mean, how familiar is this to us? Principle over personhood, Roe versus Wade, gun violence, the dignity of LGBTQ people. We all are carrying principles and Christ makes it clear through the priest's inaction and through the mercy of the Samaritan that in our lives, we are called to care for people over principle. This is a calling on our lives, our body to be participants full of compassion and mercy. Theologian Joseph Sittler refuses this kind of living shown by the priest. A believer is an evangelist primarily by who he is and how he lives, not by what he says. What he says is important, but unless his speaking tallies with what he is and does, he had better keep quiet. The goal of theology is practical, wisdom and living well. Priest reminds us, this body at Bethany, that we have a calling that emphasizes personhood over principle, a calling to represent Christ and bless the world in the way of God. And this calling is physical in nature. It emphasizes the love of neighbor, the love of earth over status. And love cannot be reduced to an ideology. If it is, it's no longer love. Love requires hinges on participation. 
the generosity and kindness of the Samaritan, making a dinner together, participating in a meal train for those grieving, cutting limbs for trail restoration. God's economy is a tangible one. And this is the sheep and goats from Matthew 25. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. The good news for the priest and the good news for us is that Christ was not concerned or bound up with status. Remember, ours is a God that washes feet. Ours is a God who was offered all the systems and kingdoms in the world and denied it. Ours is a God who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God moves towards the priest. I think of the late night meeting with uh, Nicodemus, the Pharisee in John 3, God moves towards us. Our third character is the Levite. Levites were in a similar class to the priests and their, their calling was to run the temple. So all the nitty gritty details that are involved in that. Levites would lead the singing of Psalms, construction and maintenance. They were also teachers and judges. Levites were busy. This makes me think of two things, the culture of Seattle and the culture of Bethany. See, we live in a culture that values upward mobility. Upward mobility is gained through production. You could say that the Levite chose the transaction of production over the relationship of being a neighbor. It's characterized things to do, good things on the way to the temple. Got to prep the food, got to make sure everything's in order. If he doesn't, who will? But there's such a busyness to his movement, a transaction of busyness or overwork that dismisses the potential relationship Christ places right in front of him. The good news for the Levite and the good news for us is that we serve a God whose priority is not production, rather transformation. We have a God who knows what it means to rest. Walter Brueggemann says, Yahweh is a Sabbath-keeping God, which ensures that restfulness, not restlessness, is at the center of life. Yahweh is a Sabbath-giving God. You see, restfulness is the mode from which we were designed to operate, not the restlessness of the Levite, the busyness that dismisses an injured person. How badly do we need to hear and believe this? Just look at your environment, study the first book, and we'll learn in farming, if you plant and plant and plant, the soil will lose all of its nutrients. But if you practice restfulness, let a plot lay fallow, soil will regenerate all on its own. The indigenous are our teachers when it comes to restfulness over restlessness. Think of the First Nations people that model sustainable salmon harvesting. You know, they'll let the runs go for days and days before actually harvesting in order to replenish these runs. We cannot fall into adopting the ideology of overwork because it will eliminate our opportunity to participate in the kingdom of God. If we do not have capacity, we will be rushed from anxiety to anxiety, deadline to deadline, and we will miss it. We'll miss our neighbor, bruised and beaten. We'll miss our opportunity to be Christ to a world that is hurting, to a world that is being depleted from overuse and overwork. At Bethany, if this is your body, it's an expectation that you're serving in some sort of a way. We are a codependent people here. 
I work with incredible volunteers in the wilderness ministry. And there's just tons of service happening at Bethany from uh, the guest house for refugees or community meal or uh, Stephen care ministers, story work facilitators, people in the sound booth, the worship team, so on and so forth. There's so much service happening in this body. And I don't know what your specific context is in working out this movement to participation. Mine is encouraging discipleship in the context of the outdoors. But I do know that you have a work. And I do know that with the nature of our world, it is so easy to be discouraged and overwhelmed. We're in this conversation, hearing a call to a greater participation. There can almost be this feeling of where do I start? There's so much brokenness around us, even in our own hearts and homes. How do we move into a greater engagement? Well, contrary to what the world would say, it is not through more hours or more production. We can only step into who we are supposed to be if we're coming from a place of restfulness, not restlessness. I mean, how often do we leave these walls on a Sunday activated only to be overwhelmed on Monday with pressing matters, feeling like there's no space. Remember, we have a Sabbath-giving God. For those of us who cling to the ideology of overwork, Sabbath could be a means to a greater participation. For those of us facing burnout, this is good, good news. God's pace is much kinder. I was facing this sort of burnout last month for Someone who doesn't create many sermons, they can be incredibly taxing. I've been, I'd been working on this for, for a month. I had just finished our training program for our wilderness leaders. Trips were going super hectic. Um, and honestly, I got to a place where I was identifying with a Levite. Production over relationship. Production over restfulness. Finally, I just had to take a break. I had some stacked vacation time and took a week uh, uh, to go up to Beyond Malibu, which is a very special place for me. It's been, uh, been involved there for eight years now, met my wife there. It's been a source of much healing in my own story. So anyway, I took a week, drove up the coast with my dog, took a couple water taxis and finally made it to this inlet in BC. And it's here that I was reminded that participation in bringing God's kingdom to earth is meant to come from a place of restfulness. Beyond's a very rhythm-oriented place. Up there, we practice Sabbath once a week. Volunteers will cook for the cooks. No work projects are done. We're just sitting on the dock, soaking in the sun. We're pretty hard the other six days of the week, but Sabbath sets the tone. It's the start of our week. Here's what I, I wrote before I returned. I had space up at Beyond to have empty pockets. Pockets that I could fill with a deck of cards and pegs for a cribbage game. Picks for banjo sessions, tea bags for two steep evenings with friends. Going home to full pockets. Keys to take me to a place of work, a wallet with all the decisions that have to be made, a phone with all the small voices of panic blaring at me. And I empty my pockets more often on my return. See, through this story, God is showing us how to be a neighbor. God is showing us that we are meant to be defined by compassion and mercy. And this design depends on us coming from a place of rest. If you're hearing the invitation to a, a greater participation and it's giving you pause because you don't know how you can fit another thing in your pockets, I would encourage you to start by taking some things out. Practice Sabbath. It could be a means to a greater participation. 
We serve a Sabbath-giving God who moves towards us, and that is such good news. Unless we come from rest, we will not be mercy. We will be busy, and we will miss our opportunity to be a neighbor. Finally, we have the Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They were defined as an accursed people. And Christ is using the Samaritan in this story as the one who is embodying the love of Christ. What does that tell us from the outset? It is often the ones on the margin that are going to be displaying the kingdom of God. Where are we looking to see the kingdom of God? Are we looking to those with status? Look to the margins. You're gonna find fishermen turned into disciples, persecutors turned into prophets on the margins. Samaritan comes towards him. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense. Remember, the Samaritan is the Christ figure in this story. The good news for all of us in this parable is that we have a God that moves towards us. We have a God who is not bound by ideologies. We have a God who didn't fit the ideologies of the Pharisees or the lawyers. We have a God who moves towards us. John 1, he put on skin, moved into the neighborhood with us. This was a single piece of good news that transformed my life as a junior in high school a patient adult over hours of time together explained that the nature of God is that God is always moving towards us. We do not have to chase. We're not roaming around searching in the dark for the presence of God. God comes near. And this hope filling attribute of God is not limited to Christmas time, is not limited to Advent, is not limited to Jesus's life on earth. It is our reality that God is always moving towards us. Though we have all of these ideologies around shame, guilt, power, doctrine, status, busyness, scarcity, though we cling to principles over people, though we are beaten and bruised and simply not in a a place to take a step forward, God moves towards us with a healing balm, with bandages, with mercy and kindness. This is what the story has always been. And I'm sorry if that's not what you've heard. I'm sorry if that doesn't ring true with your experience, but I'm here to tell you that this parable is a small story meant to point towards a greater story. And the greater story is that God moves towards us. This is the narrative of scripture. Adam and Eve first sin, God seeks them out. Jacob's deceit, God moves towards him. Hagar banished to the wilderness, God moves towards her, culminating in Christ taking on flesh. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be named sons and daughters of the most high God. And now that Christ has come towards us, the message to us is the exact one to the lawyer. Go and do Likewise, go forth with generosity, mercy, care, and most important of these, love. 
to heal a broken and bruised world. In doing so, we as a body will move from stagnant ideology to active participation in the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that your character is one where you move towards us, where you seek us out, that we, do not, we don't have to bandage ourselves up. We don't have to present ourselves to you, that you move towards us. We are so grateful. And God, be, because you've moved towards us with such great love, we're just grateful that we get to now participate with you. What a privilege to participate with you and bring in your kingdom here on earth. Thank you, Lord, for the great love that you have given us. May we just rest in that today and may that be the source from which we become neighbors to this city and to one another. We thank you for this story, God. It's through your son. Amen.